Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. everybody. Welcome. Hello, we're about to start the reading. Good evening. Shut up. <laughs> Thank you. Good evening and shut up. No, sorry. Um, welcome to the. Oh, you still. You know I can delete every one of them. He has the ones that I can't delete. All right, all right. It's, it's all right. You can take them. It's all right. We'll see. Um, Fantastic fiction at KGB has been running for a long time now, and many of you have been coming from the from since we started. <laughs> uh, Matt Cressel and I have been. Um, co-hosting it for, I don't know, at least five years. Well, how long eight have you years. been? Eight years, you and I've been doing eight it. Eight years of Eight years together. No. Yeah, eight years a month. And I've been doing it, I don't know how many years. So. <laughs> Just so you know, Word Bookstore has books behind us, and I hope they have both of our author's books, both of our books, so you can, get, you can get them signed in the, at, dur during the uh, intermission, and, um, and please do buy some. And KGB, that KGB bar hosts this for nothing except for hoping that you will drink something, anything, liquor or not liquor. And so you might want to, you know, be generous to your bartender and have a drink. <coughs> so anyway, upcoming, for the next few months, we have some interesting readers. <coughs> uh, December 16th, we have C.S.E. Cooney and Sarah McCrary. January 20th, Alana Meyer and Delia Sherman. <laughs> February 17th, Carola Dibble and Gemma Files. March 16th, Rio Ewers and David Nickel. April 20th, Elizabeth Baer and Scott Lynch. May 18th, Ellen Clagis and Victor Laval. June 15th, Livia Llewellyn and Mark Laidlaw. It'll be filthy. <laughs> so don't bring your kids. Um, and and we have and we have into we have further on, but I wouldn't fit on my piece of paper, and it wasn't complete. So, but anyway, our first reader tonight is Kathy Koja. <laughs> Kathy Koja's sixteen books include the Under the Poppy trilogy, Under the Poppy, The Mercury Waltz, and The Bastard's Paradise, which is just out, which she's going to be reading from, I believe as well as A Cipher, Skin, and Kink. Her young adult books include Buddha Boy, Talk, and Going Under. Her work has won multiple awards and has been optioned for film and performance. She creates, creates immersive performance events with her ensemble Nerve. Dracula is upcoming for January 2016. So please welcome Kathy Koja. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. What's going on down there? Okay. Okay. Are we good? Are we good? Okay. 
Yes, I do create immersive events with my performance ensemble. We are doing Dracula in Detroit in January. For those of you who are, yes, there are some people in the audience who will be attending the performance who have actually attended some of my nerve events before. I believe life-changing is not too strong a recommendation. <laughs> we have a lot of fun. The whole idea is you take a text and recreate it for immersive performance, trying to give people the same feeling at a performance as you get when you get lost in a really good book and where you kind of stagger out afterwards. It's like going to a movie in the daytime, right? You come out and go, what the fuck, <laughs> right? So I am going to read tonight from The Bastard's Paradise, and it is, it's the third book in a trilogy. I used to laugh at people who wrote trilogies. I thought that there was no way that you needed three books to say everything that you had to say about a particular set of characters. So life proved me wrong in the most amazing and delightful way, and these books have been a joy for me to write, and that's, my main hope is that that joy is communicated to everyone who reads the story of Istvan and Rupert. And for those of you who might not be familiar with the poppy, I wrote, I wrote something to make you familiar with it. It's called Boots on the Ground. And if you look at the cover of The Bastard's Paradise, which I will not turn the light in your face till I totally blind you, but there are boots on the cover. There are a particular pair of boots on the cover which is why this is called Boots on the Ground. Life is its own story. That's true for everyone, as true as its ending is always and never a mystery. All our stories will someday end, we know that, but it's the telling that makes all the difference. And life is its own journey, too. Every day we rise, we buckle on the boots and start walking, heading off down the road of the day. The Bastard's Paradise is the final book in a trilogy that began in the louche confines of the theatrical brothel under the poppy, continued to play at the grimy, glimmering Mercury Theater in the Mercury Waltz, and now makes a victory lap and a final beautiful showing of the lifelong love story of Istvan and Rupert, those courtly, dangerous, ardent gentlemen of the road. Along their way, they've made sworn enemies and equally tenacious comrades, like Hayden St. Mary and Frederick Bloom, whose life together is sparked and shaped by their elders' passionate example, and formidable Decca, stalwart Lucy, the apprentice turned stage mistress, and fierce young Tilda and her small son, Rue, all who are met again in this third installment, along with a new pair of would-be allies, Portia del Azore, who fervently aspires to the aristocracy, and Sir Roland Smalls, who was born at the top of that ladder but never cared much for the view. And of course, the puppets, the mechs, are fully and ferociously present. Isvan's genius for peril and play reaches its zenith here, as does Rupert's gift for translating words into action and back again because what showmen do best, after all, is make a show of their love, of their lives, of their world, and ours. The book's gorgeous cover by Rick Leader, who cannot be here tonight, he is home with our cat Dash, was seated by a glimpse of a pair of boots leaning one against the other on a stairway, 
worn down, but still holding up, still ready for the road. That they happen to be my boots is a lovely wink from the universe and a visual metaphor, perhaps, for the process of writing itself. The third book of any trilogy is by necessity its last, but if, as the saying has it, journeys end in lovers meeting, then the bastard's paradise is a consummation in all the best senses of that word. <laughs> Sauce pot. <laughs> I'll surely miss my own daily dally at the desk with the gentleman, but then again, love is everlasting. The puppets are certainly eternal. And when travelers' boots hit the ground, we never know exactly where the road will lead us or where the story may make a way to go. So. In The Bastard's Paradise, the gentlemen have played in many places and have gone down many roads. And for one of them, the desire has always been to continue the journey, to endlessly continue the journey because the journey exists for its own sake. For the other, he wants a home. He's always wanted a home. And now at the, what looks like the end of the road, Istvan is trying to find a way to make a way for Rupert to have the home that he's always wanted. What's got into you, Rupert says, but with half a smile, letting the newspaper fall to the floor. We can't afford those cigarettes, let alone a fine meal, but there might still be some of that champagne you towed at home. Home? Taking up a mingy cloth to rub his hair feeling his jaw to see if a shave is required before they dine in a workman's club that from the outside resembles a hovel, but inside might be some fond mama's own kitchen. The bread is so fresh and the beef is so tender. What's got into you? Rupert asks again when they finally depart. The streets are puddled still, but the rain has stopped and a brassy moon hurries to the sky as if she has only the barest moments to make her evenings play. And where did you get all that money? As Isfan waves over a cab as they climb inside, and it's time we were on our way, Mouse, taking Rupert's hand in his own. I've had the trap sent ahead while we dined, so all we need do is take the mistress and our bag. Go ahead where now? Why home? Spinning then a story meant only for this exclusive audience, this one man who is all the world and more. A story of simple yet ravishing pleasures, pleasant theatrical ease that Rupert answers with a deeply searching look, a question. Why even you, Fox, come to want a den? Is that it? Answered by Istvan with a shrug. Well, why not? There are only so many roads and I'm an old fox enough. Noting, too, the look in Rupert's eye as the idea takes hold, the memory, the mercury, but of all the places we might go, uncertain still through the longing, his son will remember that longing. I meant to be dead there, recall. Naturally, it's the last place they'll ever look. Now come here into the deeper shadows of the cab, those strong and loving arms, that murmur of pleasures yet untried as 
will be squires, his whisper. Cocks of the walk will have the whole city for our stage. And what's got into you? But no longer a question, no longer resisting, half laughing. As they reach the train station, boarding the nearly empty train as strangers, one to one compartment, the other to the next. The once embarked Isfan slips across the passageway, slides the door to lock behind as Rupert hangs his coat on a silvery hook, turns in shirt sleeves to ask once more and with real gravity, tell me now, where did you get the money? Even you don't win so much at dice, but what matters is how you spend it, yeah? Look here, these kingly hangings, this is pure china silk, or almost. Oh, why that look? Isn't this better than sleeping in the fucking muck? Don't you trust me? Or you me? Don't play. Give me the truth for once. Mouth to his mouth. This is the truth. Stop. Tell me. A last entreaty and command. But then there are no words. Only a grappling, a rough, half-angry coupling. Rupert's grip as fierce as a man's much younger. There will be bruises in its wake. But Isfan's gasp is merely laughter. His own grasp in return is reckless and sure. And if those few passing in the passageway wonder at the noise, the stifled groans and half-batterings, soon all is still again. And only the sound of the train remains like a great beast's breathing in its sleep. And it will be good to see a roof over your head again. Rupert's murmur at last, the window's moving moonlight across his half-closed eyes. Our own roof. And you to sit atop it with a sphinx's smile, quiet to watch as Rupert dozes, then slip again into the passageway to stand in the sway and thrum of the wheels, the soothing, rocking, mocking music of motion, as if every road he has ever traveled, walked, played, glimpsed as promise and bright beckoning were all receding from him at once, bidding him a distant goodbye, like a hill-hunting cat caught at last behind a curtained window, a dangling puppet trapped forever in a box. To play for love can mean so many things. Beg pardon, sir? A young porter pausing at his elbow. Was you requiring some assistance? In answer, Isfan takes out his flask, brandy as yellow and bright as fire, offers it to the porter who takes a quick glance. Yes, right, drinks then squeaks. Holy mother, in a voice somewhat higher than previous. I never tasted anything like that before. It's a form of chartreuse. It comes from far away, as do I. But no show lasts forever, does it? Well, no, sir, it doesn't. Where are you bound, sir? Not so far. As he watches the older man drink again, as if it is merely water, a draft he thirsts for. And with an answering bow, all elegance, Istvan turns away, back to his own compartment, to, to play a brief and solo, very private show, punctuated by a cigarette, and pulls at the flask, by the landscape at the window whose shade has been rattled to the top, Mr. Loop freed to skitter and jerk in cold sympathy and jest, and the kid will be glad to see us, yeah? Isfan's whisper 
to the eyeless side of the face, his breath a mingle of brandy and smoke as his hands do what they have always done, as they must, as they will, manipulated as they manipulate, Mr. Loop swinging his one little club-like arm every plague its doctor until a bond, his master says, and hangs him neatly on the pewter gibbet meant for a gentleman's coat, reaching then into his bag for a writing case sent by another gentleman who knew precisely how a joke should operate. Mr. Loop, the only witness, as he opens the letterbox and extracts the topmost document to read it once again as the train rolls solidly on. And this is what he reads. My dear friend Dusan, one might expect a missive such as this one, meant to be read from beyond the grave, to be a grave affair to compose. On the contrary, I have rarely put pen to paper with more lightness of heart. I've offered my trust in a very few instances, and in none did I find it misplaced. In you yourself, of course, more times than one. In my indomitable wife, whose passing I have never ceased to mourn. And in my brother, who once came to me filled with tales of a young man with whom he was much taken a performer, a conjurer he had met by chance at a country house and rode beside a while. I wonder, do you remember that night at all? Your own trust you have at times entrusted to me to our shared benefit and the benefit of others. How fully that trust was given is a question for yourself and the angels to decide. I may meet them shortly, if anything exists beyond this arena of struggle and doubt. I do not think I shall see again your face in this world. Hence the enclosed. We both have been exceptionally fortunate in the women who have loved us. It is to those women that I owe both the impetus to do as I do now and the ability to accomplish it. My wife was most anxious that her brother be shielded from some of the consequences of their father's decisions for once the lion is gone, the dogs inevitably advance. My own opinion is, if Isidore was a lion and his son is a hawk, his son will be a leech. Yet all require their share of blood. Benjamin is blessed by the gods in many ways, but true discernment is a gift he lacks, for he will always see what he means to see before what is truly there. He believed he had denied me the means to communicate with you, for example. Well, he's a young man still. But the world is growing old and the time for faints is over. The cycle of war will continue growing greater with every revolution. And I have come to understand that a man must owe only his kin and liberty, his blood. The years given in service to other methods of advancement, of meeting and turning to one's own uses, the chaos of that world as a miller uses a river to grind corn. Do I regret them now? No doubt many, if not most, would believe so, and that this letterbox is meant as an instrument of revenge, especially those men whose letters are contained within, many, if not most of whom, believe themselves to be upright men. The lies we tell ourselves to keep upright Punching here in this chair like a split sack of oats has sharpened my philosophic organs wonderfully, Dusan. It has made a profit of me. 
you, as an artist, are a prophet already. How I rejoice in and envy you that artistry. How I envy you still. These letters are called from my lifetime's correspondence, and my wife and I had a fine time in their selection. In some ways, she even more than I. The female can be, as well as protective, very pleasurably cruel, which is why I thought it prudent to entrust them to another protective woman, Miss Decca, whose instinct to defend what was her own, even as a young lady, was formidable. I know through various means that after your departure, the general sent a man to her whom she rebuffed, and I have no doubt whatsoever that whenever you ask her for these letters, they shall be waiting. I have included the necessary ciphers for the letters in code. Everything here is true. The figures, the dates, the activities, the names. In providing you this, call it a toolbox, or perhaps a properties box, such as one employs on the stage. I repine only that whatever use you may devise for this material, I shall not be able to observe it. Seeing your mind at play through the max has been for me a mystery and a marvel. Perhaps a puppet will be constructed to tell this epistolary tale, or perhaps you will make a puppet of me. It would make for a singular resurrection and there is no one to whom I would more gladly entrust my immortality. Farewell then, Dusan. Health and prosperity to you and to Ambak, to your sister, to your confederates, and actors and friends. You are one of the very few that I shall miss when I go. There is much in you that calls to mind my dear brother, who was also a man of wit and flexibility, as well as an accomplished duelist, though he preferred to his final detriment, the epi to the pistol. I was not present when he died. Our father was his second. But I saw the wound, and I saw his smile in the coffin, as if he had found amusement even in death itself. The lesson I took from this mortal loss was a very simple one. When life hands you a pistol, use it. <laughs> With respect and sincerity, I remain forever your friend and servant, Javier James Aerosmith. That's a pickle. <laughs> the, the motifs that have gone through, motifs is a grander word, the ideas, the, the, the feelings that have run through these three books have gone in a circular direction the same way that I don't know about you, but I tend to have a lot of the same problems over and over again until I learn. Some things I'm still working on. And to be true to these characters, to do the best job that I knew how to do with them, was to find these motifs and these ideas and these signifiers over and over again. And letters play a huge part in these books. They were, these men were saved by finding a letter. These men were damned by finding a letter. These men were self-sold into servitude by these letters. And so for this character to receive this box of letters is both a temptation to him to use them. It would be hard not to use this kind of ordinance against people you feel have wronged you 
and have captured you and have forced you to do things you didn't want to do because they have the money and because they have the power and because maybe you hate yourself a little bit for playing along with them, for using your gifts in ways that, what, that maybe tarnish those gifts in the using. So that's what makes those letters so incredibly dangerous and so incredibly tempting. And there's something else that I wanted to read to you, but it's not about letters because this story is about, it's really hard to bring people alive in books in ways that reflect what real life is like, but to also keep the tail turning. And this, all the poppy books are very much a tale. They're very much a tale of heroes and with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And now I can't find the thing that I had set aside for you. That's okay. I'll read you something else. This is the meeting of Istvan and his sister Deca. They have a long past, as you might imagine, a, a big brother and a little sister. And Deca's betrayal of both her brother and his lover, whom she also loves, is what sets the engine of the poppy story turning. And at a to receive these letters, the Decca who is referenced by Mr. Aerosmith has been keeping this box for her brother. And so breaking all his rules, he goes back to see his sister at her whorehouse to get these goddamn letters that he knows are waiting for him. Decca finally girds herself to climb up to that room to stand arms folded in the doorway, confronting her brother, fox to fox, and you have what you came for, she says without preamble, so you ought to be on your way. I'll gladly pay for the train tickets anywhere you want to go. Oh, very generous offer, he says, or is it the puppet, Mr. Loop, who answers? But we'll leave when we're ready, as we did before. I see, you think to play your puppets here, to spoil everything I've built as you did before. Spoil? You still owe me a bit of sport, missus, among other things. Mouse told me you came to him, exposing like a conjurer the lover's eye from beneath the pillow, the puppet on his lap to stare at her with one eye, as dry as a hard-carved nutshell, becoming in that stare every puppet he has ever made every avatar and lieutenant, accomplice, all the way back to Marco, and this one perhaps the most feral of all, that gaze as meaningful as the blue bejeweled in his reddened palm as spare your care, tossing down an ornament. We don't need such. Rupert needs someone to care for him. He's ailing. He is not. He only needs rest, and rest is what he'll have just as soon as, rest how? Sleeping in a ditch? or in some filthy barn or coffin. If he had stayed here with me, what, in this mausoleum? Oh, don't dare to fucking puddle up. You never wept before to think us parted. You parted from me a hundred times without one tear. 
her head turned as if without volition to the window, his own gaze flickering then as if he looked through some other portal, some moments older lens. Now go, I want you out of my house, away from my daughter. Your daughter likes me. Go! As Mr. Luke chuckles, one hand to his mouth, fist on poker faced above, the doubled effect as fey and menacing as their entrance into the hush and half-dark of the theater, Istvan in the whore's brocade vest and Taylor's stolen top hat. Hold that thought. This is what they're referencing. Decca had built this pretty sweet little whorehouse with her brother's lover. And she knew that everything was kind of always built on this thin ice and house of cards, but like some of us, she convinced herself that her ruse was going to work and everything was going to be okay and everything was going to be cool. And everything was cool. Until. The room is small but chilly, the coal grate piled low. At the table together, scarlet damask and black tea, her shining pince-nez, his cheroot, Rupert with the night's receipts, Decca the month's accounts. Adderley was here again. Her pen steel nib makes a disapproving sound. Was it for Lucy? Sometimes I think she tries to fall ill, tries to ferret out the most diseased, not Lucy. He dwarfs the dainty duchess chair, its carved arms and wan petty point roses long legs, tight squared shoulders, the sober frock coat and glass polished boots of a prosperous undertaker. Black hair to his collar, a deep groove between his eyes at odds with his young man's face. It was for Omer. Then Omer can pay for the doctor himself next time. Fox colored hair piled high, secured with silver combs. On her violet silk breast are several pins, pinked topaz, and pinned inside her bodice, a miniature blue eye, a lover's eye in a circle of gold, far more opulent than the others. More tea? She pours without waiting for his answer. He takes the whiskey glass instead. He rubs his forehead. Your head. Let Vera see to you. Fucking doesn't ease a headache. It relieves tension. I'm not tense. Lips parted to dispute this, she closes them again. The fire screen in the parlor wants replacing. Mm -hmm. Did we do well tonight? It seemed a thin crowd when I was on the floor. Well enough. What do you look at? Nothing. And then both hear it, the noise of commotion past the muted hum and thump of the dwindled downstairs crowd, the upstairs rooms, a girl's voice, Pearl's voice, high in protest. No! Stop! Sir, no! Stop! Not play-acting, the heat of actual distress as Rupert stubs out his cheroot, Decca half-rising, let Omar deal with it. Rupert, please, let Omar. But Omar is already at that door, rapping with the truncheon's handle. Hey, it's all square in there, Pearl? A smothered cry from within as another door opens, a vexed and peering patron from the blue room across the hall, the whore Lucy behind him trying to jockey him back inside. 
As Rupert turns the knob, Omar at his shoulder to peer through the guttering darkness, no candles, just a dim and flickering tallow light, and see the whore Pearl, wide-eyed and bare, trying to claw up the wall and away from a lean-muscled man in a white plague mask and a lumpy, determined dwarf, still half-dressed, who appears to be assaulting her simultaneously. The dwarf's arm is aiming up her back passage. The man is pounding at her front. And what harm? Omar asks, looking to Rupert, still the step past the threshold as, they didn't pay for two, cries Pearl. The little one didn't pay. <laughs> Rupert nods one step closer through the cloaking dark as Omar grabs the dwarf by the neck. Hey, hey, but no, shrieks the dwarf, a high and terrible voice. Though his ugly head lies flaccid in Omar's grasp. No, no, don't make me stop. She's tired of the virgin. Let's go. As the masked man still pounds busily away, long hair slapping his naked back, Omar tugging at the dwarf, tugging harder, and Jesus, Omar, shout as the dwarf's head pops loose. Pink blood spurting across the sheets. He throws the head from him with a curse, and Pearl goes mad. The hideous half-clothed body still attached to her by its arm, its hands still jammed inside. As Rupert reaches, grabs a leg and pulls and stumbles backwards from the force as the masked man shouts with laughter as Rupert flings the body to the floor, stares at the bed, at the man on the bed, who tugs aside his mask and shh, he says sweetly to Pearl, who is retching now on the sheets beside him. Shh, it's only a toy. <laughs> it's a goddamn puppet, Omar cries. Hello, Rupert, the naked man says. <laughs> And that's how, that's how you come back to your lover when you have a disagreement. You make a splash in the most theatrical, the most confrontational and humorous way, except to Pearl. Which is the other, the other burden and, and joy of this story, is that when they play, they play for each other. And the... The story is contained in the two of them, but it includes the other players and the audience, just as these stories are contained, but they include you all, if you wish to play along as readers, and thank you for being listeners tonight. Ten-minute ten break. In the meantime, you can buy books. <coughs> Sorry, have them signed, and we'll be back in about and have a drink. All right. Thank you, Kathy. That reading was. Where's Kathy? Where'd she go? She was. There she is. Thank you. That was that was amazing. Thank you very much. Um, as Ellen said in the introduction, Word Bookstore, represented by Jill in the back, is selling both authors' books tonight. We have. Robert's books and Kathy's books tonight for sale in the back. So uh, after after Robert's reading, go ahead and uh, go up to Jill, buy a book, bring them up to the authors, get them signed. And uh, also, um, KGB Fantastic Fiction has been here, has been running in this bar for, oh, I don't know, over a decade, maybe, maybe 12, 13 years. Yeah, please, cheer. Um, 
And it's, it's really like, it's, it's the bar. Like we're, we're here because we, we're basically supporting the KGB bar. So like all we ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, buy a drink, you know, tip your bartenders generously. generously. You can flirt with them if you want. You know, they may or may not flirt back. It depends. Anyway, uh, please, uh, you know, su by supporting the bar, you support fantastic fiction. Um, Ellen already mentioned the uh, readers, upcoming readers, so I won't do that. Uh, so we'll we'll just get started. Wait, mention how if you want to get a mailing list. Oh, that's right. All right. So there's a there's a few ways that you could find out about the upcoming readings. Um, I post about it every month on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus. If you're not on any of those, who are you? No. Um, we also have a mailing list. It's on. Uh, it's on Yahoo Groups. It's kgbfantasticfiction.yahoogroups.com. I know it's very old, but it's too much work changing it. Anyway, uh, come up to me and, and give me your email address, and I'll add you to the list. On to our next reader. Robert Levy is an author. Robert Levy is an author of stories, screenplays, and plays whose work has been seen off-Broadway. A Harvard graduate, subsequently trained as a forensic psychologist, his first novel, a contemporary dark fairy tale, The Glittering World, for sale in the back, was published worldwide in February by Gallery, Simon & Schuster. Shorter work has appeared in Icarus, the magazine of gay speculative fiction, the Brooklyn Quarterly, and the Harper Perennial Anthology, The Moment, among others. He is currently out at work on his first television pilot as well as a new novel. Please welcome Robert Levy. Hello, everyone. Uh, I am really excited to be here. Thank you to Ellen and Matt for having me and uh, I, I've been coming to the Fantastic Fiction series for almost 10 years, and I've seen so many of my favorite writers here, and tonight I get to read with one. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Kathy Kojo, so. Um, one, one book of Kathy's that wasn't mentioned in her bio is The Blue Mirror, which is one of my personal favorites, so thanks, Kathy. Um, tonight I'm gonna read a short story that came out last year in Shadows and Tall Trees, which is uh, edited by Michael Kelly, who uh, co-edited this year's uh, Year's Best Weird Fiction with Kathy. And I first heard about Shadows and Tall Trees while reading one of Ellen Datlow's Best New Horror anthologies. So it's all, it's all coming full circle tonight. So um, can everyone hear me? Yeah. Great. The story is called The Vault of the Sky, The Face of the Deep. They left me here during the evacuation, old, shrunken, and childless widow with broken hips and no one to check on her, knees that lock beneath soiled nightgown and sheets. I listened as it all played out on my now dead transistor radio. 
Only three days, my nursemaid Natalia said. I'll be back in three days. And she never returned. No food for a week. Well-drawn water long emptied from the bottles at my bedside. In this patchwork cottage with the windows covered in newsprint, since the light hurts my eyes, the same way it hurts to look at you. So blindingly blue. Now they're gone. From Pripyat to Chernobyl, all of them gone. 18 miles in every direction around the plant. Such a waste. And I'm reaching the end. Pitting fate to die alone. But then you came. Part of me hoped you would. Now, you're here. Just as you were then, so very long ago. Come closer. No, closer still. For you and I must speak on what I pray will be my last night on this godless earth. I might have had a few more days or weeks if someone else had come for me. But no matter. One day is just as good as another. Tell me your name. I've always wanted to know. No? Then you came to listen. In that case, I'll talk and tell you what you want to hear. If only you'll do me one favor. Yes? Then I'll tell it. I was born at the turn of the century as Irina Alexandrovna Semonenko, named after the Grand Duke's daughter. Our only royalty, though, was my father, who was indeed a king, though only of the local tavern, where he ruled over his court of drunken loyalists. Member of the Black Hundred through and through, and I remember his second pair of work boots lined up against the wall wondering when the first would walk home from the fields, his swollen feet inside. He was not a bad man, as far as fathers go. As a breed, they are largely absent. The worst kind are the ones that hover about, and he was a mercifully empty space in my childhood. My mother, however, took great joy in her children, the four that lived through infancy. We would dance around her dress hems, making mischief, which might earn a hard slap on the head. That didn't mean the same thing then as it does now. There was no school in those days, certainly not when this place was called Lokochkiv. So family was everything. My oldest brother Ivan is the one who taught me how to read. 
There was no going to Kiev then, no modern means of transport or pleasure to occupy our time. And when there wasn't work, there was boredom, which hung heavy over all of us, especially the men who would drink and drink more until their thoughts turned to either hatred or lust. Now that I think on it, that's why we're talking now. When was it? Was I six years old? Or was I seven? It's hard for me to put it all in place, all that time before the revolution we were supposed to forget. My strongest memory of that time is of you. That's how I knew you'd return to me once the accident happened at the plant. I said before I had hoped it, but really I knew. I knew. You ruined my wedding night. Did you know that? The night I became a Petrova. You came to me in a dream and gave me a horrible scare. Sergei had to stay up with me until morning. I was so afraid over nothing. I tried to talk with my friend, Elizaveta, about you years later, but she just laughed the way she did the night it happened. I never mentioned you again. Where was I? Pardon me. I keep thinking I hear someone calling me. My mother, perhaps, crying Irinochka from the kitchen for I've done something wrong. But she's dead now. Then again, so are you. This has become a village of ghosts. And in a way, it's your fault. Your people's fault, I mean. They're the ones who invented this way of turning energy into destruction. And now you've gotten your revenge on us. Made us flee our homes as we once made you flee. And I suppose I can't really blame you for that. For there was a time when some of the men of this province wouldn't think much more about slitting one of your children's throats than they would peeling an apple. It was almost their national duty. So try not to judge us too harshly if you can, especially Ivan. God rest his soul. May he live on in heaven's embrace. He of the three of them was the drunkest. And if I hadn't gotten him from the tavern that night, then they might never have done what they did. But maybe that's just the wishful thoughts of a dying old woman. And you, come closer, even closer. Sit on the edge of the bed, right here. Take my hand. I know you came to hear about yourself, not me. All young men are that way. You're more handsome than I remember. 
even for what you are. And so young, how old are you? 16 years? 17? I can feel pins and needles on my face pricking me. Is that you? Your skin. It's the color of the sky that night after the accident has the same radiant bluish glow. Natalia propped me up in bed before running off with everyone else to the hills and the rooftops to watch. So bright. Is it the accident that brought you back? I heard a program once on the radio regarding some foreigners from the Orient, I believe, who could think something so strongly that they could will it to life so that it walked free in the world. Is that what you are? Or perhaps you were here all along, watching me, and the radiation just illuminated you, made you visible to the eye. I don't know about all that. All the old superstitions were weaned from us by the state. Only what I hear now on the dead transistor, or maybe from Natalia, who is a gossip monger. She talks a lot. <laughs> and never listens. You're a good listener. So you want to hear a story you already know, but why? Are you my confessor? If you insist, I'll tell it. It will be my last tale. That night, Alexander and Yuri found you. Our mother had sent me to bring them home your cries heard me along the rain-slick streets, and that's when I saw the three of you. At the corner, my brothers bent over you, taking turns kicking you in your sides. Your skull cap had fallen off, and Yuri grounded into the mud with his heel. I ran inside the tavern and screamed, Ivan, Ivan, they're beating a Jew in the gutter and the whole town seemed to spill outside to watch as your blood started soaking into the dirt. It was Ivan who stumbled forward and shouted at them to stop, and a grumble of disappointment passed through the crowd. You got up, at least on one knee, and Ivan reached out his hand. You looked so peaceful then, not afraid, peering with wonder between the curls on the side of your head, as if looking up into the face of God himself. When you went to take his hand, he grabbed you by the wrist and dragged you through the crowd. I ran alongside you, watching as you tried to keep your head from hitting the stones. Maybe it would have been better for you if you had concussed yourself. 
I don't know. The alley behind the tavern reeked of urine and sick, and there was a wooden barrel there against the wall, high as Ivan's waist and nearly full with rainwater and vomit. He pulled you forward as he held your hands behind your back and tipped your head into the barrel. Alexander and Yuri lifted you from your feet. The crowd cheered. Our father stepped out of the back of the tavern then, and what he saw made him light up, his face radiant. He began to clap his hands above his head and started the crowd in a black hundred rhyme. Let me see if I can remember it. Remember the crown for the good of Russia. Strike out at the heart of thieves. Take up the sword and make it prosper. May it bloody our enemies. Something of the sort. I watched you begin to drown, your body convulsing like a fish on the floor of a boat. And then your legs twisted so hard that my brothers, laughing, dropped you into the barrel before lifting you up again so that only your head was beneath the water's surface. I turned to the crowd then, everyone so much taller than myself, I could barely see their faces. Though I do remember seeing young Elizaveta Baranskaya, Natalia's mother. She died just last year. God rest her soul. May she live on in heaven's embrace. How much fun they were all having. I laughed along with the rest of them, clapping my hands and stamping my feet into the mud. But part of me felt for you. It really did. For I didn't know how to swim. And I've always feared the water so. Maybe that's because of you. I started to turn away. But there was a strong hand on my shoulder and I was made to face forward. Your legs just twitching now. Barely struggling at all. You're a nochka, what are you doing? My mother said at my side, holding me. You must watch. And I did. After a few minutes, my brothers lifted you out of the barrel and your dead face had gone blue. Not the blue of you now, but rather mottled with white and red splotches. The crowd continued to carry on, and my mother abruptly scooped me into her arms as she made her way through the crowd. Okay, time for bed now, sweet one. All little girls should be in bed. All little girls should be in bed. And now I can't get out of mine.
and now I'm done. Eighty more years gone, and I'm done. Over there, on the wall, is a portrait of my husband, Sergei. God rest his soul. May he live on in heaven's embrace. Everyone loved him so. When I met him, he was nearly your age, and he reminded me so much of my father. So loved. How does it feel, then, to be hated, to be despised, hounded from your homes, and hunted down in the streets like dogs until you're driven out or dead? Of course, your people have their own home now. They should have thought of that much sooner. Such a waste. It's time. It's time. I must leave my bed for the very last time. Won't you help me? so I can see the midnight sky once more. I've told you the story so that you might be free of it, if that is why you came. But now it's time, and you promised. That's it. Slip your hands beneath me. Oh, pins and needles pricking everywhere. It's your skin, you unholy thing. It's on fire like the sun, penetrating me. That's it. Lift me up. Not too roughly, I'm all bones and loosened flesh. Only a monster like you would hold me now. Carry me to the front door. That's it. Careful. I'll help keep your skull cap on your head if you'll let me. Now, over the threshold, like a bridegroom from the cinema. Look, there's my cat, Misha. So skinny. What have you been eating, my dear? Nothing but weeds. Oh, my garden. My once beautiful garden, who will tend you now? One moment. There. Look around. Do you see them? There. Right there. And there. What are those things? Glowing blue in the darkness at the edges of the field? watching as we pass through the garden gates. Are those your people? They frighten me. So many of them. So many of them so young. Look at her. That child there. Her face is familiar to me. Perhaps she and I passed each other on the street one summer's day when I, too, was a girl. So bright, blinding radiance. It hurts to look. 
I'll close my eyes and never open them again. Is that the sound of my mother calling me from the kitchen? It's too late for that. Now, do as you promised, monster Jew. I can't do it myself, for that would be a sin. Help this old woman down to the well and throw her in so that I too can see the true face of God. Thank you. Robert's books are for sale in the back, so are Kathy's. Please uh, go ahead and buy books, buy drinks, hang out, and uh, we'll see you next month. Thanks for coming. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.